If, uh, if you have your Bibles, could you open them up to Ephesians chapter 4? We're going to start at verse 1 today, down to 16. For those of you who don't know me, maybe it's your first time here. My name is David Scambrian. I just get the joy of uh, running our Connect team and doing some of the community ministries we have around here. So what that really means is if this is your first time or if you haven't met me, come and say hi after the service. I love meeting new people. Please take me up on it. It's one of my favorite things to do. But hey, if you're in this room and you're a part of our church, you would know we're in a 12-week series on the book of Ephesians. And the cool thing is, we're in week seven. So for anyone here that's quick at math, week seven means we're in the officially in the second half. And just like that, we're in the second half of the book of Ephesians too. And this is cool because uh, Ephesians is actually split up into two sections. Part one, chapters one, two, and three, it's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, over and over and over And then at the beginning of chapter 4, what we're talking about today, Paul pivots, and he asks this question and answers it. He says, how do we live in response to the gospel? How do we live? And so that's what we get to talk about today. But I want to start this sermon off with a bit of a somber note. I want to start this sermon off by saying something that can be a bit heavy and a bit hard to hear. And I'm just going to ask as a church, we would lean in and just be open to this truth. See, the devil is at play in the church to sow chaos and to disrupt the good works God has in store and has planned for the church. The devil is at play. Why? Because God has a good plan for the world and for the church, and Satan, the adversary, doesn't like that. And this is important for us to get. I want to point out, I said play, not work. Why? Because play is childish. He's not the parent. He's not the one in control. He's like a child in a room with a bunch of toys, throwing them around, causing chaos, sowing stuff, but the parents are coming in, and they're going to clean house, all right? So we ain't living in fear. We're not living in destruction. We're living in awareness of the parents, but we have to be aware there's also a little child called the devil sowing chaos in the church, hoping to distort and disrupt and distract the people of God for us truly leaning in to how Paul says we should respond to the gospel. So I'm excited for today. I hope you guys are as well. Um, but let's dive straight in and read the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, it says this. As a prisoner for the Lord, this is not metaphorical. This is Paul. He is literally a prisoner in chains, probably in a Roman prison because he preached the gospel. So as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Right? That's cool. Now, here's just some clarity here. That word calling, it's talking about the gospel. It's talking about the gospel. It's, it's, you have been called a son or a daughter of the Most High. You have been called an heir of an eternal inheritance. You have been called from darkness into light. You have been called from death into life. You have been called into a hope, even though sometimes the world can seem hopeless. And so he's saying in this verse, it's like, I, Paul, someone who's literally suffering for this gospel, I urge you and tell you this, trust me. There is a right way, a worthy way of living life in light of the gospel, and we've got to lean in and work out what it is. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why, and I want to clarify this section here. This is a tangent. Paul is really good at these. He accidentally gets distracted and says really good stuff that kind of disrupt the flow. This is a really beautiful thing, but it's a bit of a tangent. So I'm just going to zoom through it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended to the uh, higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. That was hard to read. I made it too small. Uh, So Christ himself, end of tangent, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, when this happens, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Hallelujah. Can I, like seriously, guys, this is a big deal. Think of the day when the church can stand against the opposition and the tyranny of the world as it oppresses in craftiness and cunning and deceit. It comes against the church and a day is coming when we won't be blown back and forward to and fro, beaten by the waves, but the day is coming where we will stand This is good news. I'm excited today as a church because this is what we're talking about, how we as the church can thrive and survive in the face of an opposition we face. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Hey, church, say supporting ligament. Hey, guys, put some effort into it. Supporting ligament. Brilliant. Every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In verse 1, he opens up by, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Do you know what that tells me? If Paul has to spend half of the book of Ephesians, the next three chapters telling us how to respond to the gospel, it tells us that how to respond to the gospel is not obvious. It's not implicit. It doesn't just naturally happen. It's something we need to be told and we need to listen to and we need to think about and we need to respond to. It implies that there is an effective way to respond to the gospel and an ineffective way to respond to the gospel. There is a good way to respond to the gospel and a less good or probably a bad way to respond to the gospel, right? I, for one, am someone who wants to stand up today and say, I want to know how to respond to the gospel well, to live a life worthy, worthy. I mean, how good are those moments, right? Like, you know, we accidentally let out, slip that word we shouldn't have said, that thing about a person we shouldn't have said that's been burning up inside of us, or, you know, or, or, you know, we spend our money in a certain way, money we don't have, and, you know, it's this risk we take, and you spend our time a certain way, and 90% of the time we go, well, I knew I shouldn't have done that. That was a, that was a waste. But every now and then, Every now and then, those moments result in us saying this. Oh, yes, that was worth it. Oh, boy, that was worth it. I'm so glad I took that risk. A few months ago, me and my housemate got home 
and I saw this giant disgusting stony patch on our front lawn that's always been there, and I was like, the time has come. I need to fix this disgusting patch on my front lawn. And so me and my housemate, I turned to him, he turned to me, we were like, let's do this. We're going to go to Bunnings. I drew up a budget. I drew up a shopping list. I say, all right, let's do it. Now, here's the thing. I've gone to Bunnings many times in the shadow of other people, but I really had never gone before for my own self. Why? Because I have no handyman skills at all. Zero zilch. Go to Scott if you need anything built. So here's the thing. I went with this guy. I went with my housemate. We walked into, we walked into Bunnings, and I suddenly realized why alongside the pyramids of Gaza, Bunnings is an Australian icon that will be remembered for thousands of years, right? right? And so I, I walked in and I started seeing these products saying, hey, here's a solution for this issue. And I'd look at it and be like, that's an issue? I have one of those. And so, you know, things that I have no clue. It's like, you know, when you Google your symptoms and you're, you're going to die in three days. I did that essentially with my house. All these things saying, hey, your house is going to fall down in the next minute or two. Buy all this stuff. Piling up my trolley. Piling up. We're walking through. I get to the outdoor furniture section. It was a problem. I realized I don't have any outdoor furniture. And so I decided it would be time to put some boxes in my trolley of outdoor furniture. Anyway, get to the checkout, budget to distant memory. You know, the list is long gone. We get home six and a half hours later. We've built this Bunnings Furniture outdoor area. By the way, just a quick tip. I now realize why Bunnings Furniture is so much cheaper than Ikea Furniture, the number of splinters I got. But anyway, the point is, by the end of the six and a half hour block of building this furniture, I sit down on the chair, and the word budget comes back. And I'm like, oh, oh bugger. <laughs> I have no food for the next month. But I was like, that's okay. And I breathed in. I looked around. And I said, you know what? This was actually worth it. I don't regret it. I'm so grateful. I did. This is actually a good thing. And I think to myself, how, flipping, how much do we live for those worth it moments, right? Like, they're the moments we, we can't wait for. And if there are moments in life like that, then I wonder about the moments that, that is our life. Because the day is coming when we die. And we're going we're gonna to look back. And we're going to say, did I, did I live my life in a way that was worth it? Now that I see things from an eternal perspective? It's the way I spent my money, my time, my energy, my effort, my words. Was it, was it worth it? Now that I'm seeing things from a bigger and broader way than what I saw when I was there? Ephesians 4.1 says, how do we respond to the gospel? How do we respond to the good news? And it's this really good moment in here because it actually, this section actually breaks down and answers the question in about 16 verses. Very rarely does the Bible open a subject and close a subject in 16 verses. This is exciting for us. He says, hey, here's the mission. Live a life worthy of the calling. For the next three chapters, I'm going to explore this more, but this is what you need to get today. Live a life worthy of the gospel. All right, how do I do that? By making your life about the one eternal thing in your life, around you, right? That's the church. We have been built up as the body of Christ to exist eternally with God. And he's like, my goodness, you have all these beautiful things in your life. They're great. Pour some time and energy. But they're second because they'll perish. Probably not when you die. Probably before you die, 90% of these things. Like, you know, we get all excited when a new iPhone comes out. And 12 months later, we're like, ugh, this old thing. And we buy a new one, right? Like, it's absurd. We get, we get distracted. Remember how I said the devil is a play? To distort, to rob, to steal. He distracts and distorts us from God so that we don't live lives worthy of the gospel. We live ineffective lives as a church. And so we say, Paul, all right, I'm in. How do I, I want to live for the maturity of the gospel, but how? 
And he says this, get it, get it. You were uniquely crafted, individually gifted for the works and the service of Christ. You have been crafted to build up one another, to raise one another up to God's glory. That's a mission I can get behind. I hope that's the case for this church. And here's the thing. I've opened up everything I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes, and I'm going to explore them more deeply. So before I do, I would love it if you guys could join with me in prayer. Father God, I thank you that you love the church. I thank you that you know each of us by name, and you care for each of us. I thank you that you are a God who has crafted us individually and uniquely gifted us so that we may live a life that lifts one another up to your glory. I pray today, God, that we wouldn't leave this place the way we came in, that we would see breakthrough and life and hope and change coming in so the devil would flee and we would see the glory of you bring hope and healing to this world. May May we be an effective body of you, Jesus, in Kulangata. In your mighty name, we pray. Amen. So as I was writing this sermon, I, uh, I noticed how cool the way Paul wrote it was. He, he introduces the mission. I've said it a few times, right? How do we live a life worthy of the gospel that we've received, right? But then he jumps forward and says, here's the ballpark I want you to play in, right? He says, be completely, gent- uh, be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. This is the ballpark. Play in here. This is what it looks like. And then he jumps forward to an illustration of the only one who actually does this. And he says this, there is one body. Now, Ephesians talks about a body a lot, and it's always talking about the church. So there is one church. And there is one spirit. In context, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. So there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. All right, so so what's this one hope? Well, the calling we know is the gospel. But the gospel happened 2,000 years ago, and I'm going to see its completion at the judgment, you know, forevermore. But right now in the world right now, it's the Holy Spirit who brings that hope to my heart and breaks down the hardness and the blindness that I'm consumed by. And so it's the Spirit who brings the one hope to me of the gospel. Then there's one Lord. Ephesians uses the word Lord a lot. It's always talking about Jesus. So there is one Jesus who brought about one faith, one baptism. Let me say this super quick, my friends. One faith. There is one name in this world that will save us. There is one name I can lean on and trust. One whom I will put my faith in, and it is Jesus. Why? Because there's one baptism. Only one. He's the one who buries my death, who takes my brokenness and my sin and my wounds and my hurt. And he says, let me put that to death, put that to bed, let it rest and be done with. And let me lift you up to life and all the beautiful things I crafted you for. Come on. And so we as a church, we have to see there is one faith and one baptism. And there's one God who in context I know is talking about the Father, why it's literally the next word, and Father, of all who is over all and through all and in all. If you didn't see it, let me highlight it. He's talking about the Trinity. There's one Spirit, and then he talks about what the Spirit does in our salvation. All right. There's one Jesus, right? Then he talks about how Jesus worked for our salvation. And then he talks about the Father and his place in our world and around us, right? 
And I love this about the Trinity. Paul doesn't even bother saying, hey, let's talk about all the diverse parts of the Trinity. He's like, let's talk about the personality differences and how they worked in eternity. He's like, no, let me talk about the most observable part of the Trinity. That is how they serve and work together, sorry, to bring us to life, the gospel. And in that, we see separation, uniqueness, diversity in the Trinity in each of their works, and yet a oneness to them. You know what tells me about God? He's a, he is ultimately relational. Ultimately, intrinsically relational. Timothy Keller says it like this. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. He's talking about the Trinity. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demand that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early church fathers actually had a word for this dance, this pulsating, dynamic dance of joy and love, and it's called perichoresis. Perichoresis. It literally translates to the divine dance. And Keller goes on in that book, The Reason for God, and talks about how, how we, are, we are like people in an orbit, right? If you're self-centered, you're stationary. And you think you are the most weighty and glorious thing in the universe, and everything should revolve around you. And so you're like, come on, revolve around me. And then you fall in love. You experience love. And it's like you break out of what is stationary. And you begin to revolve around it. This is what's happening in the Trinity. This is perichoresis. This is the divine dance. That the Holy Spirit is so in love with the Father and the Son that he pours himself out eternally in this dance of orbit around the other two beautifully as the other two do the same for them, for him. And this is why our first point today is that we've got to fall in love with God's beauty. We have to fall in love with it. In fact, in verse 3, it literally says, uh, uh, make every effort... E.g., I've just given you the ballpark. I said, you know, um, uh, be completely humble and gentle and, you know, patient and bearing with each other in love. But that's the ballpark. Just make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. E.g., the Spirit's unity. And I, being a bit of a dork, decided I'm going to dive in to an interlinear concordance and see what does the Greek say, right? Now, I don't read Greek very well, so I had to use something else to tell me what it says. But I was looking at the word keep. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And it translates to two English words, two separate English words. Observe and preserve. Observe and preserve. Make every effort to observe the Spirit's unity through the bond of priests. Make every effort to preserve the Spirit's unity through the bond of peace. This is why Paul starts his letter and says, I want you to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And then he jumps on his random, like, seeming tangent to, now let's talk about God. You know, and you're like, what's going on here? But he's saying, let me, let me explain this. If you want to live in a way worthy of the gospel, you need to know the God in whom brought the gospel to you. You need to be consumed and filled and overwhelmed with the goodness of that God. And until you've let him totally overwhelm and fill us 
man, good luck celebrating the gospel with our lives. And what's great is that the Spirit is like the ideal member of the Trinity for Paul to mention here, because the, the, the Spirit is this weird ethereal being, right? Like so often we're like, is that the Spirit or my breathing weird? I don't know. Like the Spirit is a strange and ethereal thing that we sometimes can't even discern what's going on there, and yet... The Spirit is the most intimate and personal member of the Trinity to us today. He fills us, transforming our brokenness to life, moving in power, right? Brimming and overflowing us all the way up to our fingertips till we actually see His effect in the world around us. So when He says, man, observe the Spirit's unity, what He's saying is look to the Spirit in the way the Spirit adores and defers to and loves the other members of the Trinity. Look at the way the Spirit does unity. But then it also says this. Preserve the Spirit's unity. E.g., if it's the Spirit's unity and it's not ours, we've got to be filled with the Spirit so that He can overflow through us. And so we lean into a place where we're like, man, I'm going, God. I need this thing. I can't do this on my own. This isn't my strength. This isn't my ability. This isn't my will. This is me saying, Lord, fill me up with your Spirit and overflow through me to see a supernatural and spiritual unity become the norm in this body of Christ we call the church. And that's what we're hoping for. So, so, you know, first point, fall in love with God's beauty. Be filled, overwhelmed, transformed by it. But the second point is this. We must then fall in step with that beauty. If it's described as a dance, and I can't dance, so I'm not going to show that would be a disgrace to God. But it's the thing. Like, I can't dance, but, but. If we're going to fall in step with the beauty, we need to recognize the steps he takes. And like that, you know, that scene of the beautiful daughter and the father, and the father's teaching her to dance, and he, she holds his hands and has her feet on his feet. And as he moves, she moves. And that is what we're meant to fall into with God. This beautiful perichoresis, divine dance, Trinitarian unity as we fall into step with his beauty. Living a worthy life, right, is to get to know the God who is one. It says in, in 4, 4 to 6, um, there is one body, one spirit, one hope. Uh, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, right? Do you, you see in it? You see like all these ones? There is one God with one mission, right? Let's, let's look to him. But then it says in verses 7 and 11, it says this, but to each one of us. Individually, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. There was a man who lived in the last hundred years. And he stood on a soapbox and any table that anybody would listen to him. And he said, we need to stand together in unity. Come, come. And people started following him. People said, yes, yes, yes. And he said, wonderful, all right. For the sake of unity, I need everyone to kind of dress and look the same. And they said, yes, yes, and anyone who doesn't, we'll cut them off. And he said, brilliant, and for the sake of unity, we need everyone to kind of believe the same stuff, right, so that we can stand together. We need everyone to believe the same stuff. And his followers said, yes, 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 and anyone who doesn't, we'll cut them off. And he stands on his sofa and says, and guys, and we need everyone for the sake of unity to have the same family-looking structures and, and to have the same knowledge, only books I approve, and to breathe the way I breathe. 
so that we would all become the one ideal human that I think everyone should be. And his followers said, yes, yes, yes. And anyone who doesn't will cut them out, cut them off. If you don't know who I'm talking about, his name was Adolf Hitler. <laughs> and he, what he did was abhorrent to God. Not just for all the horrid things he did, but even his very usage of the word unity was in contrast to God. Because he said unity, but he meant conformity. He said, let's be unique but stand together. But what he meant was let's all become one weird, disgusting, melded together person that looks like my view of what humans should look like. It's abhorrent to God. And the unfortunate fact is this isn't unique to one man. We see it throughout history on repeat. And this isn't a pick on ideologies, but just to say we've actually physically seen it. But, it, but, but in communism, we see it. Every time we've seen it put into practice, we've seen the same thing happen over and over again. Look like my ideal version of a citizen. And we think, well, we live in the free liberal West. This isn't going to happen here. And yet it does. The same guy who said that quote before, Timothy Keller, he says, people who are intolerant of intolerant people are themselves intolerant, which is a complicated way of saying, if you're going to say that everybody needs to be as tolerant as I am, and then you're also going to say, and if you're not, I'm cutting you out, then you yourself are being intolerant. It's not just in one area. We see this in every single scheme and realm of the world because in every area of the world, we say unity but always seem to mean conformity. And there was a guy called R. Alan Woods who said it this way, unity despite diversity is exactly what defines Christianity. And he goes on to say, as different to agnosticism and other ideologies in the world, what God is calling us to is the most beautiful and highest way of living, where we are sold out for one another. In fact, when I read this, what I, what I see is that we are to respond like the Trinity to one another. So in the same way that, that, that the Spirit revolves around the Father and the Son, I am called to respond around each of you in love poured out, that I may be the kind of man who looks to you and sees your gifts and your calling, and I may be saying, come, put your foot on my hand. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to lift you up. I don't care if this costs me. I am so invested in your success. I am so invested in you knowing that you were crafted and created for a purpose bigger and better than you think you could have been, that I'm going to fight and keep saying it and keep standing for you until you believe it, until you're living in it. And here's the thing. This is what we're meant to be doing, not just me to you, but each of us to each other. Now, friends, take a minute. Look to, you, look, look to the person next to you and look to the person on the other side. What are their giftings? What are their callings? Do you even know? What are their giftings? What are their callings? How have they been crafted by God uniquely to raise up the church to success to the glory of God? How about we make it our mission to stand with these people, just the people next to us right now who are probably friends and family. And we say, I am invested and totally committed to your success. Because why? Because Jesus comes into a place and he says, we have one purpose, one mission, one idea, right? But to each of you, I uniquely give gifts. To each of you, I uniquely Equip. And why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ, and I'm just going to pause it there because in Australia we have, and it's actually worldwide, but we talk about it in Australia. We have a problem where when someone succeeds, we think we've failed. Right? 
We think, oh, no, if that person gets too successful, you're going, I'm going to lift this person up. But everybody thinks that they're so godly and nobody's noticing me. Oh, my goodness, I don't want to hold them anymore. I want people to look at me because their success is my failure. But God's like, if you get that that we are a body of Christ, then you'd understand when part of the body is elevated, the whole body is elevated. When one person in this church succeeds, everyone in this church succeeds. And then we have this tendency when we hear things like that to turn to like the foreigners, right? To look not, not in our country, but around the world where we say, well, this is for the Russian Orthodox. This is for the Vatican. This is for the American Episcopalian Church. You know, this can't be for us. This is for those over the border over there. But you've got to understand, we have no power there. Our power is here at the end of our fingertips and the tip of our tongue with the way we love and build one another up. This is a message for New Life Cool and Gather this morning today. Because we planted this church about a year ago with a passionate vision to see God reach Cool and Gather in his glorious name so that people's broken and hurt lives may become more whole and more hope-filled. And that vision hasn't changed. And I don't know if you've walked around Cool and Gather lately, but I'm going to tell you right now, there are people out there in desperate need of the gospel in the sight. People with mental health issues, addictions, brokenness, homelessness. And they're just the ones that aren't behind closed doors. How much more brokenness is in our community behind the closed doors? And God's like, man, when we become the kind of people who are mature, so that we say, I'm all about your success and you thriving in the gifting you have, I'm not making this individualistic. This isn't your job to solve your call and to make this about your glory. It's, it's for me to say, no, listen, hear you. I believe you have been crafted by God for a reason. I'm all in for your success. How can I help? How can I serve? How can I lean in? Verse 14, it says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. My first point was we need to fall in love with God's beauty. My second point, we need to fall in step with that beauty. Because I believe when I read this, what I see is that there is an option, there is a version of the church where we are not broken and brought down by the oppression and the opposition we face in this world. And that is good news for our church. That is good news for each of us. But here's the thing. What I also read, what I also see when I read this, is that the cunningness and the bad teaching and the deceit and the craftiness of people is an effective tool being used to cripple us. And that is why I started this sermon by saying the devil is at play. We're not opposing people. We're not opposing humans. We're looking at a crafty enemy at work to pacify the church, to shackle us. So where Paul is literally a man in prison for preaching the gospel, we are in chains right now here today. Shackles made of fear, apathy, and a lack of confidence in our community. And I believe that we could be a people who when the blows of the world come about, we're no longer infants who are swept to and fro and beaten and bashed by the waves. Here's my question. Here's my question. So how, New Life Cool and Gather, do we plan on leaving this place today? I love the encouragement I get from this church. I really do. But it is one of my greatest fears at the same time that we leave this place and the last thing we have is we go, good speech, Dave. Nice job. 
That was nice. Warm fields. Felt really good. And that's it. Like encouragement is part of what I'm talking about. Good. But if that's where we leave this and then we leave and that's that, that petrifies me. But what if in this moment right now, this morning, the devil could flee and his whims could fall short and the church could glow in the glory of God against a world that is dark and seeking to oppress us? What if that could be the effect of this morning? Do you believe it this morning? Can you, can you get psyched for this for this morning? And the Bible literally says it's possible to no longer be infants. This can be our norm. And when this is our norm, Kulangada is transformed. Heck, the Gold Coast will be transformed. One of my most favorite parts is back at the beginning, I, talk about, I, I, I looked at the scriptures uh, four to six, and it talks about the oneness. And this is what really encourages and motivates me is because in this verse, what I see is it talks about one father or one God, one father. And it talks about what he does and his role and his, his interactions with us. And it talks about one Lord, that is Jesus, and how he worked to save us. And it talks about the Holy Spirit and his works in our lives to bring that gospel into reality and fruition today, here and now. But I actually noticed one more party. It starts with this. There is one body. And if you notice, every other person in here talks about the work that that member of the body does for our salvation. But what does it say after one body? Nothing. Nada. And it's like there's this moment where we were frozen, cold and frosty, stationary in our souls in a spot and that perichoresis, that triune divine dance of God started moving around us in total commitment to us in a way we don't deserve. The Father God enduring us even as we spat in his face and built images against him. You know, the Son dying a death he did not deserve. The Holy Spirit reaching out time and time again in spite of the fact that I seem to continue to grieve him. And yet, in perichoresis, in this perfect orbiting love, he flows around and around and around, calling us to observe his beauty that we may see something stunning and that frosty, cold, stationary souls that we fill with could begin to crack as the ice melts and we could begin to move. We could begin to orbit God and the Trinity and we have in Christ been grafted in. It's described as a marriage to this Trinity. So that forevermore we will be participants, not as God, but participants in the relationship, in his acceptance of us, in his presence with us. Everlasting joy will be found here. And that's why Paul says, if you want to live a worthy life, make it about the place we'll find everlasting joy. Build up eternal things. Hey, celebrate the small things. Celebrate the things today. They're cool. They're big. But make first the things that will tread, the, the treasures that will not be destroyed, that will not rust. I don't know how you guys are feeling today, but I'm feeling like I'm excited. I'm excited because I believe that this isn't a message we preach and we leave and we go, cool. It's a message where we as a church could begin to turn to God and say, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm prepared. I'm playing the game. I'm not a spectator anymore. 
Man, people come, put your foot on my hand. I will lift you up. I will do everything I can with all the gifts I have to celebrate your gifts and your callings until you experience the success of the calling God has for you in the gospel to his glory. And then we as a church will be beautiful in a world in desperate need of that kind of relationships. They say, what's different about the church? I don't understand it. And we say, we're all in for each other. We're separate and unique and diverse and different, and yet we love that about each other. And I'm all in for the things about that person that makes me feel uncomfortable and weird. Why? Because I know God has a plan to use it. And so I'm going to celebrate them. I'm going to champion them. I'm all in. So how do you plan? How do we plan on leaving this place today? Can we envision and hope for a mature church, for a body of Christ that looks like this? So I'm going to invite us all in a few moments to stand. And the band is going to lead us in worship. Not a song, not singing. No, no, no. Worship. A moment where we can turn to God and forget this moment right now, forget this space right now, and say, God, I'm in. Teach me what this means. Teach me how. I'm in. Right? And in this space, there's going to be a couple of people praying over here. I'm going to ask that if your heart is stirred by this message, that you would either stand where you are worshiping God and seeking Him to step in, to encourage your heart, to observe Him in a way you haven't before, to be filled with Him in a way you've not seen before, or to preserve the Spirit's unity by being filled with the Spirit and be willing to step out even though it might cost. Lord, I want to. I want to want to. It's a good idea. I don't know what it looks like, God, but I'm open to this. Would you move? Would you do something? So either that or come and join us as we pray. Let us lay hands and pray with you because as a church, we're in for this. We are excited about this. Let's pray super quick and the band will lead us. Lord God, you are good. You are so good. I thank you, Jesus, that you have had a plan for the church since before the beginning of time. And it's not been a plan for us to lay dormant or to play daycare for the child that is the devil. No, your plan has been for us to close up shop and say the parents are coming in and we're going to live in a way that glorifies God, stands against the, the distorting and the distraction of the devil and says, I believe that there is life to be brought to my communities and my world. And Jesus, you are the source of that and I am in. Whatever the cost, what else is there? Holy God, I pray your spirit would be stirring something in this room. It's not a, hey, good talk, nice thoughts, but this is a moment where the devil will flee. And if you're in this room today and you don't even know this, God, I'm going to invite you in to begin a conversation after the service with us. If you're in this room and you have been experiencing a a move of God in your soul and you're like, I don't know what this means, then I'm going to invite you to respond to that by just coming to chat to myself or to Scott or to any of the Connect team. And we just want to have a conversation. Let's talk about it. But I believe right now God is doing something in the church. And I believe right now, God, I want to thank you that you are moving powerfully. Stir our hearts to respond and not be apathetic, distracted, or distorted from the beauty that is you and your church. Thank you, Jesus, in your mighty name.